Welcome to the 200th episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Forestine. And I'm Damian Garden. It's Thursday, March 10th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Where did SARS-CoV-2 come from? MIT Technology Review reporter Antonio Regalado has embarked on a journey to answer that thorny question, and we ask him why. Do biotech companies get too big to succeed? We discuss the travails of Gilead Sciences. We'll start with a rundown of the latest news in the life sciences. But first, a word from our sponsor. We're excited to announce a new annual initiative, the Stannis List. The Stannis List is the most consequential accounting of leaders in health, medicine, and science. Aided by a select panel of judges, STAT surveyed sectors such as biotechnology and diagnostics, as well as broader arenas like education and policy, to identify the most influential trailblazers, well-known figures, and unheralded heroes who are shaping our life science landscape. To see the list and to meet this year's 46 honorees, visit us at statnews.com slash status list. That's statnews.com forward slash status list. S-T-A-T-U-S-L-I-S-T. So, Damien and Meg, happy 200th episode. Woo! On a cake with 200 candles. That's a lot of episodes, I have to say. That's a lot. The number of weeks that... You guys have been doing this. I have not been doing this for 200 weeks. I joined in like the 100, I don't know, 30th week. (laughs) Yeah, you know, so we look back and the 100th episode of the Read Out Loud occurred like basically at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, which kind of tells you that like basically from episode 101 to today, (laughs) this has been a COVID podcast. It's amazing if you think about that we've had 100 episodes where I'm sure that we've mentioned COVID in in just about every one of those episodes. Although we are reaching a point now where it is becoming less of a focal point um, of the podcast. Another focal point, of course, has been Biogen. Throughout the course of the last year, this became the COVID and Biogen podcast. And while we might escape much COVID talk today, no, we won't actually. Our third guest is all about COVID. Never mind. (laughs) Um, We're also going to talk about Biogen to some extent. Yeah, in many ways, we've been locked in a holding pattern. Yeah, I suspect I suspect the next 100 episodes, you know, if and I'm assuming we have another 100, 100 episodes in us, they'll be hopefully will be less COVID. So speaking of things that are neither COVID nor Biogen, this week, jury selection began in the trial of Ramesh Sunny Balwani, who famously was the chief operating officer of Theranos during Theranos' heyday and the boyfriend previously to Elizabeth Holmes, who earlier this year was convicted of wire fraud. Yeah, and in addition to, of course, the real world (laughs) proceedings with the trial, um, there was a development in the Theranos world uh, last week. The Dropout premiered on Hulu. Um, That's the TV show based on the ABC podcast by Rebecca Jarvis. Um, And it has Amanda Seyfried. Is that how you pronounce her name? As the lead? I thought it was Seyfried, but now I realize I've never heard her say it. Well, anyway... 
people know who we're talking about. <laughs> she plays Elizabeth Holmes. And actually, like, uh, so I, I've watched the first three episodes and I wasn't necessarily prepared to be like that engrossed by it because I've listened to all of the podcasts. I've read Bad Blood. I was just kind of theranosed out. But I don't know. She does a really, I, I thought her delivery, her acting was really spot on in terms of she's got the affect of Elizabeth Holmes, the way she speaks, even before she adopts that like low voice. Um, I'm curious to know how much, you know, they, they really know all of this stuff sort of happened the way it happened because you have to dramatize so much in a TV show that you obviously cannot substantiate otherwise. Um, but I don't know. What do you guys think? Before uh, Damien chimes in, I want to ask him because I have not yet watched it, but has William H. Macy's character appeared? <laughs> oh, yes. Yet? Because yes. the forehead, <laughs> his forehead is is really like a character unto itself. Well, the show features just a truly galling amount of William H. Macy's forehead. Um, but <laughs> with that criticism aside, I agree with you, Meg. I, I think that the the Holmes performance is is really good, really strong. One thing that's curious to your point about dramatizing it is it, it's clear that um, it'd be very boring, just narratively, regardless of what the truth is, if the show depicted an Elizabeth Holmes who, you know, as a nine-year-old girl is like, I want to do fraud. Like, that would suck. So so there is a there is a narrative arc by which she kind of, in a, in a somewhat of a comic booky way, becomes a little bit of a villain. Like, we watch, at least in those first three episodes that are, that are available now, we watch kind of a super villain origin story, right? Like, things in her life conspire in such a way that the decisions we make she makes that are familiar to us that lead her down the path of the conviction uh that she uh received this year kind of line up they kind of make sense you see why a reasonable person might make choices that uh <laughs> that begin to bend and eventually break the law and and as you said you know a lot of this is in the imaginations of the writers, because there's only so much we that has been verified as what actually took place within Theranos. But it is kind of fascinating to watch something that we've seen play out in real life now get this Hollywood treatment, for lack of a better term. Because, you know, as we know from things that happened before we were born, quite often the semi-fictional reenactment of it in film is what lasts in the memory of society for better or worse so we're kind of watching the myth of elizabeth holmes be constructed in real time which is which is interesting hey damon question for you on the in the real world uh or going back to the real world the sunny balwani trial that's just getting underway uh how do you think he feels about sort of being having his trial separated from elizabeth holmes trial you know given obviously the the verdict there well i mean in in some ways having it separate is ideal because you are not subject to the accusations against your alleged co-conspirator, but going second is less than ideal. Yeah. Especially when the Holmes trial... Going second's got to suck. Right. Especially when the Holmes trial got so much attention. So right now they're going through jury selection and the reporting from San Jose is that it's proving very difficult. It was difficult in the Elizabeth Holmes trial because the Theranos case was very famous and so jurors would come in with what might be biases for or against, more likely against, uh, the defendants. But, you know, Balwani is coming in where that that trial got a lot of coverage, so people covered it. But furthermore, this Hulu series is being pretty aggressively marketed, like the bus stops, at least in my neighborhood, which once featured a picture of actual Elizabeth Holmes holding that little nanotainer to promote the HBO documentary two, three years ago, now feature Amanda Seyfried as Elizabeth Holmes holding that same, or presumably a prop, nanotainer advertising this Hulu series. So we are 
really living in like a wall-to-wall Theranos world, and, and that makes it difficult to, you know, to assemble an unbiased jury for this trial. But will Elizabeth Holmes's dad-in-law show up at Sonny Belwani's trial eating a Rice Krispie <laughs> treat? That is what I want to know. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, Sonny does not cut the sympath- sympathetic figure as much. You know, I don't, that's going to be difficult. Well, right. No, I mean, it, it legitimately, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, legal experts have, have pointed out that, you know, Holmes is a young woman. She's a, a fairly recent mother. She was surrounded by her family. She took the stand to make a pretty emotional appeal um, in favor of her innocence. Obviously, it didn't work out. She was convicted. But Balwani doesn't really have either biographically or sort of personality-wise any of those tools at his disposal. And so, you know, we'll see what happens. The He faces identical charges to Holmes, but he has different attorneys. It's going to be a different trial. Uh, but everything that we know going into it suggests that it's fairly unlikely that he fares any better than she did. And honestly, it kind of would seem to lean toward him faring a little worse. In 2020, Gilead Sciences acquired the drug maker Immunomedics for $21 billion. The centerpiece of that very large deal was a breast cancer drug called Trodelvi, which Gilead believed could be a foundational product in its oncology business. But two years later, Gilead's plan for Trodelvi appears to be in some trouble. Earlier this week, the company announced results from a closely watched clinical trial involving Trodelvi in women with the most common form of breast cancer. Technically, or maybe we should say statistically, the study was a success. Gilead announced that Trodelvi slowed the progression of breast cancer compared with a chemotherapy comparator, achieving the main goal of the study. However, Gilead withheld the actual results from the study, which, as you'd expect, raised red flags because it suggested that Trudelvi's benefit for those women with breast cancer was minimal. Despite a quote-unquote positive study, Gilead's stock price fell as investors sussed out that Trudelvi was unlikely to grow into the blockbuster cancer drug that Gilead had plans for and that that $21 billion acquisition would suggest it needed to be. So as we all know, in biotech, disappointing clinical trial results are a common occurrence. But the Trudelvi setback is particularly painful for Gilead and its shareholders because it's one of three big deals that have gone bad under the tenure of CEO Dan O'Day since he joined Gilead in 2019. And Gilead, of course, is best known for its dominant HIV drug franchise. But more recently, the company's tried to become a major player in oncology. It paid that $21 billion to buy Immunomedics and Trudelvi to help reach that goal. But as this week's announcement showed, Gilead's cancer dreams seem far away from being realized. And guys, in, a, in many ways, this just kind of feels like deja vu all over again. Like they have been trying for so long to establish themselves in cancer. And each time when you get that sort of pivotal result, it falls short. Yeah. And it's it's fascinating because the angst around Gilead, you know, as you mentioned, they, they built this uh, really, really effective and really, really lucrative a stable of treatments for HIV and then eventually for hepatitis C. And I remember circa 2013, 2014, when they were functionally printing money, then the pressure, because this is, you know, they're a publicly traded company, so it's never about what what you've done lately, it's what are you going to do. The pressure was, how does this plucky biotech underdog, even though they'd been around for like 30 years at that point, how do they become the next Pfizer, the next Merck? And so obviously Gilead settled on oncology as being the field in which they would invest. But, 
you can't, or I guess what we're learning is that simply having a lot of money and a bunch of smart people doesn't really entitle you to success. So, you know, there's there's a lot of debate around the wisdom of the various deals that Gilead did, including this immunomedics deal most recently. But at the same time, it does kind of feel like a truism in biotech that your expertise in, in this instance, virology, doesn't necessarily make you uh, an expert in waiting in oncology. Yeah, and I feel like stepping back from this a little bit, you know, you see a company like Gilead, which has had so much success, like we said, but are now sort of struggling to kind of make this third act, if you kind of think of the the cancer business as kind of a third act at Gilead, sort of make that, turn that into a success. And the company, in a lot of ways, has kind of stalled out, um, but they're not the first sort of big cap biotech company to to have this problem, like to kind of find itself at a point where it just seems to be really difficult to grow into something larger, like you know, and I think of companies like like Celgene, for instance. You know, I think Celgene uh, had this problem where they just kind of hit a wall, and then ultimately, you know, they sold themselves to Bristol Myers Squibb. Uh, you know, again, our our favorite biotech company on this podcast, Biogen, uh, is now also facing the same sort of growth problem or challenge. And it is just interesting to me that, that you know, we don't we don't see these companies kind of getting to a point where they can kind of become the next Pfizer or the next Roche or Novartis, right? They just sort of, they struggle. And then then this becomes like this existential question of like what they should be doing. Right. But at the same time, they're not still counted by people who are investing in the biotech and pharma space as growthy biotech companies. Like they've entered this new sphere where we tend to think about them more like pharma companies. I remember when Amgen announced that it was going to start paying a dividend, it felt like this huge moment of like, we're not a biotech anymore. We're a big grown up pharma company. But Adam, you put together the revenue of the biggest biotech companies and the biggest pharma companies. And there's a really obvious gap between even the biggest biotech companies, Amgen, Gilead, Biogen, Vertex, Regeneron, and the biggest pharma companies, J&J, $50 billion in pharma sales in 2021. Pfizer, which doesn't really count because (laughs) of its huge COVID vaccine revenue, $81 billion, you know, almost $40 of that being the COVID vaccine, but Roche, almost 50 billion, Novartis, more than 40 billion, Merck and Bristol, 49 and 46 billion. Whereas the biotechs are all, you know, the biggest biotechs, Amgen and Gilead are 26 and 27 billion. And Gilead, of course, also was helped by COVID with its remdesivir revenues. So even though they're in this different grown-up phase, they're not big pharmas either. What is it that kind of stops these companies from reaching that higher sphere? Do they just get bought before they can? That's a good question. I mean, quite often, it does, I mean, historically, they do get bought before they can. But I think what we're watching with Gilead is how difficult it is to ascend beyond that without getting bought. I mean, Gilead is probably, unless things go really poorly over the next couple of years, too big to be acquired for any of the major pharma companies, but it's also not small enough to get the kind of credit from investors and just from society that, you know, the plucky underdog biotech company gets. And so they, they're in this sort of uncanny valley where they seem to just be constantly disappointing everyone, despite, again, this is a 
profitable business that is doing very well on its virology treatments. And as you mentioned, remdesivir, uh, we don't talk about that much because, you know, it's that we have oral treatments for COVID-19 now and um, a lot of other therapeutic interventions seem to be much more efficacious than remdesivir, but they were first and they made a lot of money on it. Um, and yet the the narrative around Gilead, it just always seems to be one of expectation followed by disappointment. Yeah, part of it is a function of time. You know, these biotech companies are, you know, I mean, not like they're, they're newbies, but, you know, they haven't been maybe around as long as some of the well-established pharma companies. And, and also just the sheer quantity of products and drugs that they sell. I mean, you look at, you know, you look at some of the big companies, like you mentioned, J&J and, and Pfizer and Novartis. I mean, they, you know, their, their stable of medicines that they sell is just it, the, the list is a lot longer uh, than some of the biotech companies out there, even though the biotech companies have been very successful and have, have, have developed and approved, gotten approved and launched, you know, multiple, multiple drugs. Um, but they do, like you said, they, it, it, it is interesting to sort of watch them, their progression. And, you know, obviously these are very successful companies. We're not saying that they're not, but that they do they do struggle at some point. And, and I sort of look at, I mean, what's interesting to me is sort of the companies that are sort of um, sort of coming up into that sort of big cap realm. You look at it like a company like Vertex, which has been obviously hugely successful with its cystic fibrosis drug franchise, you know, this company that about eight billion dollars in revenue now, and and you know, like a lot of these other companies, is now searching for what will be next. You know, what 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 in their pipeline can be sort of that next blockbuster franchise. You know, the next treatment that will that will generate billions of dollars in sales. And we're watching that same phenomenon play out, it feels like, in Fast Forward with Moderna, which in very recent past was in that sort of plucky underdog group of biotech companies with a dream and quite a lot of money, but has since become a revenue-generating firm thanks to its COVID-19 vaccine and is now the focus of questions that are put toward Vertex and Gilead, which is, congratulations on making billions of dollars. What have you done for me lately? And they too, I mean, we'll see how it plays out, but they too are under this pressure to come up with what the next big thing will be to, I don't think anyone expects them to sustain their revenues from uh, the pandemic because it's sort of a special case, but to, to sustain some sort of actual cash flow positive growth. And that's a difficult question to ask. And we should be fair to Gilead, uh, you know, uh, Matt Harper, our colleague, uh, talked to Dan O'Day for a story this week. And, you know, Dan says, you know, that, that you know, he, he still is very confident in the company's ability to to grow its uh, cancer business and that these are early days and that, uh, you know, that even Tradelvi and other drugs that they have in their pipeline will sort of will play out and we'll see more data. So, you know, I, I don't want to you know, I don't want to sort of say that we've reached a definitive conclusion and say, you know, Gilead's cancer business is a failure. I mean, that's not that's not really fair. Um, I'm, but I think it is fair to say that it's probably taking them longer than they expected. And it's and it's a challenge because, as we all know, guys, I mean, cancer is just the most competitive field within within the pharma biopharma industry. Right. It's just so hard to to really dominate in that world because there's just so much competition. Where exactly did SARS-CoV-2 come from? More than two years into the pandemic, we don't really know. And the answer has massive implications for science, public health, and global politics. But just asking the question is a surefire way to get yourself yelled at on social media and accused of all manners of ill intentions. 
Antonio Regalado is apparently comfortable with that risk. He is a reporter at MIT Technology Review and the host of a new podcast called Curious Coincidence, which investigates the origins of COVID-19. And he joins us now to talk about it. Antonio, welcome to the Read Out Loud. Hey, uh, great to be here. Hi, everybody. So Antonio, as we said, this is a podcast about the origins of SARS-CoV-2. Tell us about the origin story for your podcast. Why, why make a podcast like this? Uh, why make a podcast? Well, it was an idea that the, we had in the summer. Um, it just, you know, this debate was playing out on social media, as you guys mentioned, quite quite vicious uh, and quite important. So uh, we thought it would be great to get some of these voices uh you know, for people to hear the voices, uh, including uh, some of the anonymous sleuths uh, that are involved in sort of trying to track the origins. So we, we found them and we have them uh, on tape. And it's it's a pretty interesting tale. Yeah, I was really surprised listening to your episode on that when you introduce these sort of characters that, you know, are these anonymous people who are doing this work. And then you're like, oh, and I got them on Skype. <laughs> I was like, wow, <laughs> that's pretty cool. So you actually get to hear from them. Um, maybe dig into the reason why finding the origins of this virus is so important. You discuss the moral imperative with um, the economist Natasha Loader. Maybe explain that a bit. Uh, yeah, I mean, the basic reason is uh, to prevent the pe next pandemic or to get ahead of the next pandemic. Uh, it would be great to know exactly how this one uh, started. So, for instance, if it's the you know trade in wild animals for food in China, as many scientists think, that uh, that that would be something to focus on and and sort of bring to an end. Uh, of course, if it's a laboratory leak, then it becomes way more interesting to a reporter like me, a biotechnology reporter, because then it's about. Uh, synthetic biology. It's about these techniques that they, that they use to manipulate viruses. So, um, you know, you have to admit that there's a kind of a bias going into it that uh, for me, uh, the laboratory uh, accident scenario is just is just more interesting. And it's also it's also one that's more tractable for a reporter, right? Like I can make some progress on that uh, at home uh, here in Boston. Right. Versus traveling uh, to Wuhan, China. But I guess, would you mind kind of delving into those two competing explanations. There's the the zoonotic theory and the, and the lab league theory. And obviously, this is the subject of the podcast. But where do we stand on the argument over which of the two of those is actually responsible for COVID-19? Well, the, the title of the podcast, Curious Coincidence, sort of, you know, gets to the main point that's in favor of the laboratory leak. It's just this incredible coincidence that this laboratory called the Wuhan Institute of Virology, sort of the world's specialist in just this kind of virus, happens to be located in city in the city of Wuhan. So that's really sort of remains the sort of the the primary source of doubt about whether it's a lab accident, right? Like, you know, if you have a brucellosis uh, outbreak on your cattle farm and you're five miles from the brucellosis research station, you know, that's the first thing you're going to think of. It, it, it did come to the mind immediately of many scientists. In general, uh, the the concrete evidence uh, from, you know, where the early cases in Wuhan were, where they lived, um, and the circumstances in this market, the Huanan market, you know, those those all tend to point to the market. So many scientists say there's just sort of like more evidence and even much more evidence pointing to the market, but it's just difficult to rule out the lab scenario. You know, you mentioned, uh, Antonio, that, you know, as a reporter, and you know, I think you sort of fancy yourself as a bit of a muckraker journalist, uh, that, you know, the, the, the lab accident theory uh, has more appeal to you. But do you worry about kind of giving 
oxygen to conspiracy theories. Uh, you know, that, the critics will say that that's what you're doing by kind of maybe leaning a little bit more onto that side of this debate. Uh, right. Well, we tried to cover the debate uh, and cover the characters on 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 both sides of it. Yeah, we're we're open to the criticism that even discussing the the lab leak kind of gives oxygen to that idea, and to let's admit uh, some wacky people who are in favor of it. Um, but on the other hand, you know, one of the most interesting things that have hap- that has happened uh, during the debate is that you know we've learned people have filed freedom of information requests. You know, we've learned that scientists had their own doubts, right? Uh, they had their own doubts about this and, and continue to. So um, that weighs strongly on the other side. You know, if, if some of the leading scientists in the world and specialists in coronaviruses have this concern themselves, then, you know, it's fair game. Yeah, it's such an interesting time to kind of be looking at this question, because the way I see it, you know, just playing out on Twitter, it almost seems like, you know, quote unquote, more established, like serious scientists are arguing publicly that even bringing up the idea that this came from a lab in some form or fashion, it is just so ridiculous that you don't even deserve to be in the same, you know, conversation uh, with more serious scientists. Um, so I wonder, you know, episode one, you featured Jesse Bloom, who of course is part of that that crowd, but um, is himself somebody who has raised questions uh, about the potential, you know, curious coincidence here, um, as well as Alina Chan, so um, who a postdoc at the, the Broad Institute. So they're proponents of the lab accident theory, but episode one doesn't have folks on that other side. Um, why is that? Do you, did you feel like you needed to give more oxygen to the lab, you know, proponent side because it's sort of the underdog theory? How do you see that? And does the rest of the series, which we haven't gotten to listen to yet, um, have some of those other voices? Yeah, well, we're just working on uh, episode four, where we talked to a reporter that I know in China who's kind of gone on the trail of the, the this wild animal trade, you know, farming wild animals uh, for food. It was sort of promoted by China as a poverty alleviation uh, uh, idea. And also with a scientist who just in February came out with two reports that they say has kind of cinched the case uh for the market. Of course, there's lots of argument about it. So uh, the series builds up to to that point in episode four. And then uh, at the end, uh, we're going to look at um, the types of research that are, that are going on in labs in China and in the United States that, you know, is really on the cutting edge of synthetic biology. So I was curious about what do you think the the implications are or would be if there ends up being a definitive answer, you know, as you mentioned, if, if in fact it's a, uh, you know, zoonotic thing, then that's in many ways a little less interesting because we're familiar with viruses um, arising from animals and passing to humans. But if it ends up being at some point conclusively proved that this came from a lab, from, from um, you know, the, the process of biotechnology, what would the implications be for for science and even just for society, if that ends up being the cause of this, you know, now two plus year pandemic. Right. Well, I actually think that whether or not uh, we find the the, the answer, uh, whether or not it is lab or more likely uh, natural origin, that it's st- that that this huge debate over the COVID nineteen origins has been useful because it has shed a spotlight on this research, which basically involves going out and finding these potential pandemic germs, sequencing them, and then, of course, doing laboratory manipulations. And 
you know, the kind of place where we end up is that 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 is potentially dangerous knowledge because, you know, these days all this information is online and a growing number of scientists can just take that online information and reconstitute the virus. Um, it's called this is called a synthetic clone. But, you know, you can basically go from the text readout of the virus genome to the actual virus. And so, you know, uh, the, the question that arises and is worth asking no matter what the true origin is, is, is about that information and the ability to, to bring those viruses back to life. Antonio, you've been deeply involved uh, in this reporting, both in the podcast and, and, and in your reporting at, at MIT Tech Review. Do you think we're going to ever find a conclusive answer to this question? It depends what conclusive means. I mean, I think I think scientists scientists are going to have uh, a view that you know once the evidence piles up to 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 a certain level, uh, especially for the natural origins case, uh, you know they're going to get all these different lines of evidence, and it'll basically you know paint a, a picture uh, of what happened. On the lab leak side, um, you know there was always the possibility that you could you could actually find the smoking gun. You know what I mean? Like some sequence in a database that actually matches SARS coronavirus 2 exactly, right? So if you think about it, you know, you're driving around in your forerunner and then you sideswipe a police car. Well, you're going to leave behind, you know, pieces of your uh, Toyota there. Um, so there's going to be a match, right? Uh, it's an accident. So you don't get to plan ahead about what evidence is left. And, you know, I think a lot of people's hope was that they would find that evidence, that sort of concrete smoking gun evidence for the lab side. That has not happened. That has not happened. There is no, you know, direct match. Uh, And so that's really a strike against the lab theory, I think. So your podcast just launched this week. Um, It's great. Uh, People can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts, including where you're listening to this podcast. Um, You know, it's only been out for a couple of days. Have you gotten responses to it yet? Like, this is such a charged area. How have people responded? Yeah, well, okay. Like some people think I'm way too lab leaky, uh, but the lab leakers also uh, happily block me on Twitter, and I'm I'm subject to their criticism as well. So as long as the incoming fire is like from both sides, um, I'm going to feel pretty good about it. Yeah, you're doing your journalism. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so as Meg mentioned, Curious Coincidence is a podcast available wherever podcasts are. Uh, not sold, but freely provided. And freely providing it is Antonio Regalado. Antonio, thanks for joining us today. Great. Great to be here. Thanks, guys. That does it for the 200th episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Ambonato and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and if you know where the coronavirus came from, or if you have thoughts. (laughs) You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. And I'm Damien Garde. Wait, sorry. I, yeah, you don't <laughs> sound awake this morning. A sort of Gomer Pyle thing happened. <laughs> you don't know who Gomer Pyle is? You don't know who Gomer no. Pyle is? Uh. character, the Andy Griffith show. Why do you know who that is? <laughs> the Andy Griffith show is on in the 60s. All right. <clears throat> and I'm Damien Garde. <laughs> <laughs> is that Boris? <laughs>